the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Tuesday, March 8th. Derek Van Riper, Al Melchior here, rolling through our series, part five of a six-part series. We're calling it Depth Chart Diving, and today we're focusing on the AL East, taking a spin through those five depth charts, looking for playing time, battles of interest, trying to have some fun in the wake of the ongoing lockout. Hopefully the kind of fun that will actually be instructive for what you could or should do once we get to the brunt of our drafts. I know a lot of those still haven't been put on the calendar yet, even though the industry had the labor salary cap drafts over the weekend. So if you're interested in what happened there, Eno and I talked about what happened in the AL and the NL leagues uh, on the Monday episode of Rates and Barrels. Uh, we haven't talked to anybody who's in the mixed yet, so you know maybe we'll save that for a future episode. But I'm sure a friend of ours who does a podcast somewhere, or several friends of ours who've done podcasts somewhere, have shared their uh, experience from that draft. But we begin today, Al, with the Tampa Bay Rays, the reigning AL East champions, a team that, for as good as they are, I think is currently difficult to project from a playing time perspective because there's an assumption that they're going to trade someone or a, a couple of someones. Are you taking late shots on Videl Brujan or Josh Lowe since the price is still reasonably light and both of those players can get you at least some speed. I mean, I think Bruhan's got a, a projection for 15 steals from ATC, and that's with a half-season share of playing time. So clearly the potential impact there is significant. And and Lowe is kind of a do-everything, maybe a slightly low batting average center fielder who would be a plus defender on top of what he brings to us as fantasy players. Both of those guys tend to go outside the top 300 overall, but I'm curious if you're comfortable throwing late darts there, knowing that a trade almost certainly has to happen for them to unlock enough playing time to have an immediate impact in mixed leagues. Well, I haven't drafted either one yet, but you make a really good point about the likely changes coming in the, the Rays roster construction and the fact that both Bruhan and Lowe do offer some some steals appeal and in the case of Lowe, a, a nice speed power combination. So I haven't yet, but now that you mention it, yeah, I think I will take some dart throws on both of these players uh, late in some drafts because why not? What do you have to lose? Uh, and and you might be able to gain a healthy number of steals from one or one or both of them. Yeah, I think the the follow up question is if you can only get one, and it's certainly possible just based on other people being interested and, and maybe kind of hoping one emerges for a larger share of the playing time. Do you have a strong preference there? Not a strong one, but I think you made a nice point about Lowe's defense, maybe giving him a leg up on playing time. So I, I think maybe a little bit of a preference for Lowe, and like I said, maybe a little bit uh, more power potential there as well. Yeah, I think I've got a, a flaw in my own analysis that has been problematic for me for the better part of at least 10 years now, where in the past I would look at players like Lowe and Bruhan and say, I always prefer the guy that strikes out less. And that, of course, is referencing what was happening in the upper levels of the minors. We saw Bruhan very briefly in Tampa Bay, and the K rate was just a tick above 30%. But in 26 plate appearances, I'm not sure that's really going to tell us much about what the future brings. If you look at projections for these two players, all of the projection systems on fan graphs have Bruhan under a 20% K rate, and all of those systems have low at or above 26.2%, with a few of them, even the bat, having low at 31%. In the past, I would say, ah, that's a huge difference. I want the guy that makes more contact, but 
I think I've learned the hard way and taken longer than most people would take to learn that that's not the only thing teams care about. And if you do a lot more damage when you make contact, that offsets a big portion of the K-rate differences. So uh, I would say there's a, a much better chance that Lowe could have a, an important defensive position to call his own, whereas Bruhan could be more of a super utility guy, even if some of the, the logjam is ultimately cleared. So I think those are the two things that have me leaning a little more towards low, whereas uh, this time a year ago, if I were throwing a dart to stash one in a deeper league, it probably would have been Bruhan for the reasons I was just outlining. Yeah, and I might be a little bit, I think, unfairly biased too by the struggles that Bruhan had when he was called up. And I think I really need to just not even have that in mind when he's uh, in my queue and I'm, I'm making some decisions. I think the other thing that helps me choose a little more wisely or what I hope is a little more wisely is when I look at things like uh, how the league or how, how the production in the in the leagues they played at together or the levels they played at together how that's contextualized by something like WRC plus Josh Lowe 142 WRC plus at AAA Durham last year Bruhan after an amazing start actually finished uh, a bit lower than expected, 111 WRC+. plus, So a pretty big difference in the offensive value provided by those two players, even though so much of the fantasy value from Bruhan could come from speed. He was 44 for 52 as a base dealer in Durham. Uh, low at the same level was actually 26 for 26. What a fun team last year they had with guys like that. <laughs> Some of these pitchers that we're going to talk about here in just a moment. A uh, simple sort of game show format structure here on our next Rays topic. Are you in or are you out on the Rays rotation members at their current NFBC ADPs? We're just looking at March, so the last seven days really worth of drafts. None of their starters inside the top 100 during that span. So we begin with Shane McClanahan around pick 132. Are you in on McClanahan this year at that price? Oh, I'm I'm absolutely in on McClanahan at uh at that particular ADP, uh, I don't really see the the downside. I think he'll get a good bump in innings from where he was last year, assuming that we have enough season for him to do that. Uh, he's got the probably the best strikeout upside of anybody in this group, and uh, you know a, a good offense uh, to back him. So I, th- I think that's actually a, a really nice ADP for for McClanahan. I, I think if we'd seen a little more of him last year, and we saw a good amount of many way. I think that would have maybe jumped the price a little bit higher. I mean, just one of the filthiest young pitchers in the game. How about the other Shane, the, the second one to get to the big leagues last season of their Shane prospect, Shane Boz at 143. So about a round later in most rooms, but you could actually look at this as almost as a toss up in some ways. Uh, what are you doing with Shane Boz in that range? Getting him if I can, and I haven't been been disappointed to get sniped on Boz a, a few times. And, and maybe I, I went a little too quickly in terms of proclaiming McClanahan having the best uh, strikeout upside. I think maybe in terms of pure bulk strikeouts, which of course which is what matters in most leagues, maybe he does. But Boz certainly on a per inning basis uh, maybe deserves that that distinction. And I think that if there is a distinction between McClanahan and Boz, it's just that we, we've seen more of McClanahan. So I, I don't really, despite the, the relative lack of major league uh, uh, experience, I, I don't see any reason that we should be worried about Boz at that uh, ADP right in the, in the middle of the 100s. Yeah, I think with, you know, with these two players, there's a slight worry about innings, but at the same time, 
a lot of players have that in the pool right now. So relative to other pitchers that go in this range, maybe you're missing out on 30 to 40 projected innings compared to some of the higher end arms. It's not like you're comparing them straight up to Corbin Burns and Garrett Cole and the first and second round pitchers because it, it's no there's no reason to do that from a workload perspective. You have to look at the alternatives that are actually on the board in the same range. There's a pretty big gap before you get to the next potential raise starter. I say potential, even though I assume this guy is very safely in the rotation. It's Luis Patino, just outside the top 300 overall. Very young for the level everywhere he's pitched. I thought he showed some pretty interesting signs of growth. He was my pick for the first sleeper roundtable that we put in the athletic draft kit for 2022. Uh, do you share my optimism about Luis Patino at what is a very reasonable price? Well, I do because of that ADP being outside of the top 300. I think if you know we go back to a year ago, where if my memory is correct on this, that there there was a little bit more hype and, and anticipation about Patino uh, putting up some innings. And given that, you know, we did see some innings from Patino last year and that uh, the strikeout rate, the whiff rate, they were down. Uh, that the overall numbers were just really merely okay. That does make me worry. I mean, we can always look at with somebody like a Shane Boz, you know, we can always project our, our highest expectations onto them when we've barely seen them in the major leagues. Uh, with Patino, I think there's more of a question of how much of a transition is there going to be? Is he going to meet the expectations, you know, maybe ever? So uh, if he were being taken higher up I don't I don't think there'd be any chance that I would be drafting Patino anywhere this year but because there's very little risk at where he is going that there's 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 really no reason not to try to bank on that upside yeah I mean I like Tristan McKenzie in Cleveland I like what he was able to do in the second half of last season I think the concerns about someone like McKenzie's workload are are totally warranted given some of the issues we've seen him experience in the big leagues during his young career. I can't explain why McKenzie's going more than 100 picks earlier than Patino. Those are two guys that I like almost equally, and there's a significant gap. I think the way the Rays manage pitching always makes me a little more confident about their young guys being in the best possible position to not hurt your ratios. And sometimes that includes the benefit of getting an opener. So if they feel that Patino can't go more than four innings at a time, there's probably a reliever throwing an inning or two before him, and then he's actually got chances to get wins, which is really nice for a guy that in other rotations that don't operate that way, there might be concerns that he'd be overused, and then the ratios would be bad, and then there'd also be concerns that even if he weren't overused without an opener in front of him, he wouldn't have a chance at getting wins, and since we still need wins, that is a huge problem. So uh, two thumbs up for me on Luis Patino, and and I think one is for skills, and, and one is for the fact that he's just a complete bargain right now. In the exact same range, Drew Rasmussen, who I thought was going to be a reliever when the Rays acquired him from the Brewers. He's had two Tommy John surgeries. That was part of the reason why I think the Brewers were uh, using him in that, that short role, but he was really effective as a longer longer reliever starter bulk guy. I think bulk guy is probably the most accurate way to describe Rasmussen's usage last season. Do you think he can do it again? Because I'm getting vibes here that you could actually stack the Rays' rotation or projected rotation because of cost and efficiency, and you'd still have a couple pitching spots to play with. 
Yeah, I think Rasmussen can do it again. And I think because the the strikeout rate is relatively mild compared to the, the pitchers that we've talked about so far, that he does maybe get overlooked and underdrafted compared to what, what he potentially could do. Uh, he's certainly uh, not likely to get an ERA under three again, like he did last year. But again, you know, he doesn't have to to get the kind of value that that uh, he's being drafted for. So I think the key thing for him is obviously to to get enough innings, either as a, a starter or if he goes back to some sort of bulk relief role. But uh, I think that given that the way that the, the rotation stacks up, that I think that Russ Messon will will get he'll he'll meet those uh, innings projections that he's that he's getting some of the more generous ones actually there's there's quite a bit of divergence there the bats got him at 118 so does ATC but Steamer's got him at 145 so Rasmussen's a little a little polarizing in that regard but I've been drafting him as if he's going to be closer to that that higher number and I think he'll do a good enough job of keeping the ball in the park and getting just enough strikeouts that. He'll he'll be a reliable back of the rotation option in fantasy. Yeah, I don't have a great sense for how much teams are going to be willing to push guys above their previous maxes. I think 2021 was the professional max for Rasmussen between the, the Rays organization and the Brewers, and it was about 87 and a third regular season innings. I think he got a little bit of action in the postseason as well. Even if you tack 50 on there, you get to the 130 range, which I think is cl- yeah, closer to that high-end sort of range that you were talking about. Uh, also encouraging that if you look back at the last time that he was used extensively as a starter, that was double A back in 2019, the walk rate was a bit higher at that level than it was uh, during his prolonged opportunity in the big leagues. I know it was a split role between the rotation and the bullpen, but it's nice to see control heading in the right direction. Uh, here's the the wild card, if you will, of this bunch. Corey Kluber, the Rays have done this before. They've taken old veterans. They've found a way to get one more very good year out of them. And sometimes those pitchers bounce back and have several good years, right? I mean, Charlie Morton's career has, has been productive uh, even longer than expected after his renaissance in Tampa Bay. And I think Houston was kind of part of that, that process as well. But do you think the Rays might have found something similar in Corey Kluber uh, who was only able to make 16 starts with the Yankees a year ago. Well, the fact that it is the race that's giving Kluber another shot here makes me more optimistic for Kluber because they have that history. And the fact is that Kluber was was pretty good for the Yankees. The, the biggest issue is just that he was limited to 80 innings. Uh, he's not going to be uh, the, the Kluber that he was at his peak with Cleveland, but he's still somebody who, uh, you know, you look back not only at last season, but uh, the last full season that he pitched with Cleveland uh, where he did uh, toss 215 innings and more than a, a strikeout per inning, you know, very, very similar peripherals to what he had in 2021. So I don't see any reason why Kluber can't exceed or, you know, at very least match those peripherals that he had with the Yankees uh, and do that this year. But like we were talking about with Rasmussen, the projection systems are sort of all over the place in terms of what to expect from him innings wise. And I, I, you know, I would go more conservative with Kluber just because he hasn't pitched that much, much since, uh, since 2018. See, I think for me, I'm more willing to aim above projections for a guy that's a lot older. Kluber will be 36 in April. I don't think they're worried as much about his long-term future. It's not to say they don't care about a 36 year old's arm health, but I, I think the, to whatever degree a team still uses workload as a preventative measure against future injuries, I think they are 
less likely to use those same measures with Kluber. But I do think what they will do with him is the same thing they do with everybody else. If he's good two times to the order, then he's not going to get the bulk because he's not effective enough to get through the third time. They'll make that sort of change. And if they have to put him on a, a Rich Hill sort of plan where he's out there throwing fastballs and, and curveballs and then nothing else, well, that's fine too. That could actually work if it's done correctly with the right location strategy in the right spots. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to always fall into the trap of just being optimistic about the Rays, but it's very hard to look at the results they've had and, and not be excited about this group of pitchers, especially when the market is treating them, what I think is in a very fair sort of way and, and leaving some potential value out there uh, for everyone. I know we've talked a lot about their pitching and a couple of their young hitters, so a question about the top of their roster for you before we move on. Who will be the three most valuable position players for the Rays in a 5 by 5 Roto League and in what order? Like that's That, to me, is the little twist that makes it a little more tricky. Yeah, because without the ranking, it's. I think it's pretty clear that you're talking about in some order, uh, Wander Franco, Brandon Lau, and Randy Rosarena. Uh, I don't think that Austin Meadows is really quite in that conversation with uh, those three and, and being a distant fourth. But this was tough uh, for me, at least between Franco and Brandon Lau. And this is another case, DVR, where I think that my perception has gotten a little skewed by my 2021 experience where I had Brandon Lau and uh, he, had, he had a really rough stretch early in the season, but really made up for it big time in the second half, but not really trusting those overall numbers. But yet you look at what he did last year and it's it's sustainable, it's projectable into 2022. And I think if you get similar numbers from Brandon Lau, then it's then it's a question of how much progress do you see Wander Franco making this year? Because what he did as a rookie was was pretty incredible. I feel like maybe that hasn't been appreciated enough. But I'll, I will give Franco the nod here as the one I would rank the highest just because, uh, because of a, a prospect of his caliber that I would expect some advancement from, from the rookie season. I wouldn't expect uh, him to plateau or, or to regress. So I think he gets a little bit of a nod for me over Brandon Lau with uh, Randy Rosarena, a not very distant third. Yeah, I think it's interesting that projections have it lined up that way too. But I think Randy Rosarena, because of the speed, pretty consistently gets drafted ahead of Brandon Lau. I understand why the people making that choice are, are making that choice, but I think it it does point to a little bit more of a, a, a low floor relative to his cost for Randy Rosarena that people might not be fully expecting, right? It, it could be the kind of thing where you expect $25 worth of value and you got 15 And that's not going to ruin you, especially if the bulk of that 15 ends up coming from the stolen bases that you were hoping for. But if you were hoping to get the more well-rounded skill set and he underperforms on that, that will be frustrating in the end. And I, I think I agree with your order in this case. Lau, the only concern I have with Lau... I think he might be slightly more vulnerable to mixing and matching. I think some of the past struggles he's had against lefties are the kind of thing that the Rays would try and keep him away from. So it could be a big side platoon role with only occasional chances against lefties for him, whereas I think Wander and Rosarena might be just a tick safer for their respective roles to not have to share their spot. But very close between uh, the second two, especially, I would put Wander first of that group as well. Let's go to the Red Sox, where I begin with a back-end pitching question. Garrett Whitlock, Tanner Houck, 
or possibly both as guys that are sort of fringe top 200 picks and and trying to compete for regular spots in this Boston rotation whenever spring training begins? Well, I've already touted Tanner Houck as one of uh, the the players that I'm really targeting a lot as uh, compared to to what his ADP is suggesting. But I, I think maybe I have underestimated the depth of the, the Red Sox rotation because it's not clear that Whitlock will necessarily be in the bullpen. Uh, he could be the closer. He could be in a bulk innings uh, role that he, he filled for, for part of last season. Or uh, you know perhaps he does go back to a starting role. And another thing, too, that uh, maybe I underestimated was the, the quality of the arms in the rotation, because I just kind of look at Rich Hill and Michael Waka and think, OK, well, th- these are not major obstacles to Hauk and or Whitlock getting innings. But Waka actually had a really good stretch for uh, you know a little more than the last half of the season. It didn't really get reflected in his ERA, did have a bit of a home run problem. But even so, uh, both Sierra and XFIP had him uh, estimated below a 3.70 ERA with um, you know a decent strikeout rate during that period, 25.7%. That compares nicely to a 5.5% walk rate. This is over his last 81 and a third innings that he threw last season. So, you know, maybe the, the Red Sox have something there in Waka and the fact that they've been slow to promote Hauk into a, a steady, prominent role makes me maybe a little bit more worried than, than I've been up to this point. Uh, but, you know, that said, I mean, you know, both Whitlock and, and Hauk, I think, are are reasonable picks given where they're, where they're typically going. Yeah, I think the increased appeal for me with Whitlock in the last couple of weeks is that even though they're stretching him out as a starter, if they are full in the rotation, they have some questions in the back of the bullpen where Matt Barnes was pitching well for the first half, first three and a half months of the season, and found some major struggles in the second half, lost his job after getting a contract extension, which is probably the main reason why I would say that if you had to project a Red Sox closer today, you would assume they want to give Barnes another chance in that role since they've got several years of Matt Barnes on the books right now, and they just want to get him going in the most valuable sort of way. But if he looks like he did in the final two months, of 2021, we're left with the, well, who's closing on this team question, and Garrett Whitlock could be a great closer if they need him to fill that role. Yeah, it's really hard one to project, but you can look at it you know, positively that if you draft Garrett Whitlock, that most likely he's going to serve in some role where he's going to be useful from a fantasy perspective. There's a couple other interesting Red Sox on the position player side, younger players that did totally different things with their opportunities at the big league level last season. Bobby Dahlbeck showed improved plate discipline late in the year, plenty of power even when the plate discipline wasn't good. Kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about elevated K rates, and you can get away with it if you do enough damage. Dahlbeck kind of lives more in that Joey Gallo, Miguel Sano sort of range where you, you could kind of see the higher K rate working, but now you're also excited about the possibility of the K rate improving based on what he was doing in August and September last year. Uh, but he offers cheap power, potentially, and there's Jaron Duran, who I thought was going to offer us cheap speed. The projections still think it's possible. He was 16 for 19 in 60 games at AAA last season. 
uh, all the projection systems, even with kind of a, a partial year's worth of playing time projected, have him with double-digit steals in the projection for 2022. So who do you think is a better value, Dahlbeck for cheap power or Jaron Duran for cheap steals, even though we've seen Dahlbeck make more adjustments at the big league level to this point? Well, my drafting behavior would suggest Duran because I think I've got him on every team so far, <laughs> but I, it's also because he is going later and so there's there's less risk involved. But I do feel like taking your your question to face value that in terms of uh, the, the value that, that each can bring, I actually think it is Dahlbeck because I'm more secure in his playing time. Uh, I work secure in terms of what he's going to give me. The fact that Duran only attempted three steals in his 33 games last season has me a little bit worried about that. And I realize again, it's you know small sample and certainly the, the potential is there for Duran to steal a lot more and, and to try a lot more. But you, you compared uh, Dahlbeck to, uh, you know, to, to Joey Gallo and uh, I forget what the other player was that, that you uh, that you mentioned. But I think that his batting average floor, despite all the strikeouts, is not quite as low. So you're looking at a batting average that's not going to hurt you as much as maybe some other power-only type players. You're going to get some run production most likely, and then you could just get a whole lot of power from, from Dahlbeck. So I, I just feel more secure that he's going to give you a, a return on the the pretty modest draft pick that you'd have to give up. Yeah, the kind of guy that maybe runs a little better than um, some of the other players that have that profile and play that position. Maybe that's a part of it too. Uh, it is interesting. The Bat X has a, I think, 240. Yeah, 240 projection on Dahlbeck's average. That certainly won't bury you if you're looking for some late corner power. Um, I'll agree with you on the Dahlbeck thing, but I, I think Duran... Duran does fit into the category of players that people are, are maybe forgetting a little bit about because the debut was so underwhelming. But that debut was only 33 games, and I think when you see some of the adjustments that he made at the alternate site in 2020, the results reflected in that less-than-half-season run at AAA. It was a 132 WRC+. plus. Just to contextualize that with what Josh Lowe was doing at AAA Durham last year, it was more like a Josh Lowe sort of performance. He's a little older for the level, so you have to take that into account. But I think if you're looking for 15 or 20 steals, you might be surprised that that Duran's going to play enough and, and gives you a path to get that. Whereas a lot of other players that, that you're going to take these, these late, late speed flyers on, they're not part of offenses that are as productive as the Red Sox, or they don't bring some pop to go along with that speed, right? They're more of like two or three category players. Duran could actually be... Maybe a five-category player, but you don't have to reach all five categories right now for him to end up being a good late-round pick. So I uh, didn't feel like there was a wrong answer. Mostly wanted to just bring up both names because I've heard more about Dahlbeck in recent weeks. Haven't heard nearly as much about Duran, which is just strange based on the needs of a lot of fantasy managers late in drafts. Let's go over to the Yankees where I have another pitching question. What is your interest level in the non-Garrett Cole starters that the Yankees have? Because you can talk yourself into a wide range of outcomes with a lot of players that they're trying to rely on for innings this year. I think the one player that may not be that may not be true about is Jordan Montgomery. I think now after last year where we finally got an opportunity to see him as just a, a regular part of the rotation. Well, I guess that's really not fair. His rookie season, he did make 29 starts. But since then, 
Uh, we've not really had the opportunity to see him in the rotation for for a full year. And you you basically got, I think, probably the higher end of people's expectations with more than a strikeout per inning, a sub four ERA. I think he could certainly improve a lot on the six wins that he got for the Yankees last year. So I, I think that what you got in 2021 is a roughly a good guide for what you you could expect from Montgomery this year. But again, I think probably with, with more wins, it wouldn't be shocking to see him get to double digits in wins. But then, yes, for, for the rest of the, the rotation, Luis Severino, what we saw in a very, very small sample was encouraging in 2021, but, but who knows how many innings he's really going to be able to provide and what the quality will be. Nesta Cortez is sort of interesting to me, DVR, because I remember being pretty high on him last year. But one thing that I think maybe I just didn't dig deep enough or overlook was that the strikeout rate from Cortez, I, I think it's, a, it's not necessarily very sustainable. So he had almost 10 Ks per nine innings last year. Uh, Cortez, a 27.5% K rate, which is obviously pretty, pretty darn good. And I think above what people were expecting, but nearly one third of his strikes were foul balls. High, high above average. So the whiff rate, the called strike rate, those were both a little bit subpar. And I just, I've seen this before with pitchers where they beef up the strikeout rate with a lot of foul balls. And that's not something that's typically repeatable when it's when it's that extreme. So I know you're not going to have to draft Cortez particularly early, but you still may be a little bit disappointed in what what he gives you this year. I think I would want to treat him in my drafts the way I've been treating Drew Rasmussen, actually, because the first two times through the order, uh, easy, like sub three ERA, you know, plenty of strikeouts. I think the third time through the order, which he didn't get there that often, a 694 ERA in those brief windows. I think they intend to use him more like a four inning guy when everything's going right. There's going to be days where he pitches more, where he's efficient, they have a lead, all sorts of factors can can open up a few more innings on occasion. But I think you're going to find that he's one of those pitchers that is really effective with a particularly quick hook. And the Yankees, because of their bullpen depth, can afford to do that. Because you can you could do something like Nestor Cortez for four innings and Luis Heel for two or three. And that's a really nasty tandem to put together. Uh, if you want to try and, and manage one of your rotation spots that way, uh, or they could just turn it over to a bunch of short relievers. They still have one of the deeper bullpens in the league. But I, I do I do think Nestor Cortez is a good pitcher. I just don't know if we could possibly see another level beyond what he did for us a year ago. Uh, do you think people are sleeping on Jamison Tyon just a little bit relative to expectations a year ago? He's a fringy top 300 overall pick, and the numbers really weren't that bad when you consider that he makes half his starts in Yankee Stadium and has to deal with the AL East. Well, but both of those things will remain true this year. <laughs> so <laughs> I actually think I, I understand the hesitation to draft Tyone. So I don't if we're sleeping on Tyone, then I'm I'm snoozing along with everybody else. And I looked into what was behind the the high uh, home run rate last year, uh, one and a half per nine. And I know that that sounds, you know, that sounds probably really silly because, of course, what what was behind it? I mean, he moved from PNC Park to Yankee Stadium, changed division, changed divisions, changed leagues, but he also barely threw the sinker last year, and in its place threw a, a lot of four seamers, which for him is not at all a good pitch for for ground balls. 
So that's something that worries me a little bit. You saw it reflected in the ground ball rate that went, uh, for example, from in 2019, 49.6% to 33.2% last year, by far the lowest ground ball rate of Tyone's career. So who knows what his pitch mix is going to look like in 2022, but I am absolutely concerned about that. Yeah, and I think the thing that really jumps off the page for me is the the home run rate against lefties is quite a bit higher. Not surprising, given the park. He did have a lot of success at Yankee Stadium. His ERA was more than two runs lower than his ERA on the road last season. 326 at home, 560 away. Better second half than first half. I think that's where some of my optimism comes from. It felt like he, he maybe turned a corner at some point during the season, a 350 ERA. In the second half, opponents hit 217 with a 280 OBP and a 376 slugging. So he made some progress with the home run issues he was having earlier in the season. So I think where he's going, he could just be a, a spot starter, someone that's in and out of your lineup a little bit, and that's fine. There's still a little glimmer of hope for me that he can be a tick more than that if you're thinking about Jamison Tyon as one of your last starting pitchers. So I want to know, are you trading for Joey Gallo in keeper leagues now in case your league mates somehow missed the plan to ban the shift starting in 2023? I hadn't been thinking about that. I suppose that if I'm going to, I probably should do it soon because it will certainly do occur to people if it hasn't already. Uh, it's not a bad idea. And actually, you asked me this question that got me to look at who had the lowest uh, batting averages against the shift the last few years. And Max Kepler, for example, might be somebody who who benefits a lot uh, from from that rule change. But yeah, it's, it's worth a try. I think the Max Kepler nugget you just shared is way more helpful to more people because in Keeper and Dynasty Leagues, I don't think Max Kepler would be hard to get right now. And his skill set otherwise is pretty good, right? He's, he's patient. He doesn't strike out a, mu- a lot. He can run a little bit. He does kind of everything, and it, it should yield better results. So I think the, the shift thing is sort of an explanation for why isn't Max Kepler better, and I had not previously looked into that. So uh, even if my question was half-joking, uh, it led to something that I find pretty helpful. The more serious question, I guess, is do you find it worthwhile to take the current discount on Joey Gallo and just say, I'm taking one batting average hit, but I can offset it with the rest of my lineup. I mean, for a little while, that's that's been something people have done with Joey Gallo. A full season with the Yankees could lead to some pretty great counting stats and some sick power numbers, which are you know something he can do in almost any ballpark. But just curious if you have a, a 2022 plan for Gallo specifically. Pretty much to, to avoid him, I think, to be honest, because... I've just gotten burned trying to do that in the past. And I, I, for a while, I held out hope that Gal could actually be sort of the type of player that we talked about. Well, in fact, you made the comparison between uh, Joey, Joey Gallo and Bobby Dahlbeck. And I sort of had hopes that maybe he could be a guy who reliably hits 230 or 240. I am past that now. So you really have to be disciplined if you're going to go for Gallo. And there is there is an argument for doing it, DVR. And obviously, you know, it because you're, you're the one asking the question. But I... His overall value does project to be greater than the spot where he is typically being drafted. So if you can be disciplined and really have a list of batting average contributors that you really target late on, I think it can pay off. I just know that in my past experience that that hasn't worked because there's just so many moving parts in the draft and I wind up maybe needing to fill multiple categories and I wind up not getting the players I need to 
to shore up my my team batting average. So, or or just the the room responds differently than I think, and those players just aren't there. So, I just would rather not take that risk and get my power elsewhere. See, I think if I've got a good batting average foundation with a speed focused group of hitters to start my team, I'm fine with Gallo there. I, I don't think I don't think you necessarily have to go out and and pair him with Michael Brantley or do some of the things that can work. You don't have to do it that way. I think it's realizing that you don't have enough speed that's going to come with what should be everyday playing time. A lot of the, or a lot of power, let me rephrase that. You don't have enough power that's going to come with everyday playing time available later in the pool. I think Gallo is the type of guy that doesn't get a lot of days off. So as long as he's healthy, you're getting more homers, more RBIs, and more runs than you get from a lot of the cheap uh, power guys in the outfield and a lot of the cheap power guys that play on the corners that have to share their position. So, uh, there's there's a case for Gallo for me if I'm speed heavy and power light and he's there kind of in that know, 175 to 200 range, which has been happening this draft season. The other Yankee I want to throw out there real quick, Aaron Hicks, still one of my favorite late outfielders available. It's been uh, just a mess of injuries for him in, in two of the last three seasons. Interesting that in 2020, he played 54 out of 60 games that year, so that would be pretty much a fully healthy season, albeit a shortened one. 2018 was a long time ago. Hicks is still only 32. Still only 32, says the guy who's 37 himself. 27 homers, 11 steals that season. Yeah, I'm not expecting that again, but I think he still controls the strike zone really well. There's a chance that Aaron Hicks has a very prominent spot in the Yankees lineup, and the counting stats might be good. So even if the speed is only a handful of steals and the power is more like 15 home run power, I think he's on the short list of guys that don't do much in those two categories who might do enough in runs and possibly RBIs to end up being a good last outfielder in deeper mixed leagues. Well, I've been a Hicks skeptic, and I've I've not really seen any reason to target him even in deep deeper mixed leagues. But looking into it and also just hearing the argument that you made DVR, I think that that is a really good argument to take a chance on Hicks as late as he's going. He's outside the top 548 since the middle of February, or I'm sorry, outside the top 500 uh, in February. Uh, but uh, I looked at that ADP since the middle of February and then looked at uh, where he ranks according to his most optimistic projection, which would be the Steamer projection. Steamer has him 90th among outfielders. So being uh, 125th in NFBC ADP, uh, yeah, if, if you're in a league that's deep enough where you're, you're drafting within the top 100 outfielders, Hicks is somebody that you could, you could easily miss and you probably shouldn't. And I think there's probably a little more on that batting average than the projections. The projections are all in the two twenties for the most part. I think steamer at two thirty three is the most optimistic batting average. I'll take the over on that. I think he's more of a two forty guy with a good OBP and, you can live with 240 hitters. You can live with 230 hitters if you don't have too many of them. But I, I just think the way the last three seasons have gone with injuries especially have really wreaked some havoc on the projected skills that are still left for Aaron Hicks. Let's go to the Blue Jays. Pete Walker's work as the pitching coach in Toronto with Robbie Ray last season was amazing. Do you have a Jays pitcher that you are trusting more than most in 2022 as a result? I'm not sure that I do because I was really prepared to to say that um, Kevin Gosman was <laughs> going to be that pitcher for me. But actually, the community seems to be 
pretty trusting of Gosman uh, based on where he's being drafted. So I don't know that I'm really ahead of the curve on there. Maybe I'm just with everybody and not being excessively worried about the change of venue for Gosman. I think if anything, maybe uh, Jose Brios, just because we've seen him pitch part of a season now in Toronto and saw that his skill profile was completely unchanged with that move. So that's really encouraging. And you, you do put that together with uh, the work that Pete Walker did with, with Robbie Ray. And you can reassure yourself that, that Brios is going to put up similar numbers again in 2022. Uh, but on the whole, yeah, I don't really see myself being way ahead of the the, the curve on anybody here uh, just because of that situation. Yeah, I've been waiting for that one truly great Jose Barrios season where he's like an SP1 for a whole year. Maybe, just maybe 2022 with Pete Walker uh, making some adjustments to an already good profile. We could see something like that in the bullpen. Jordan Romano, is he a safe top 10 closer for you? I hope so because I just took him in uh, in uh, TGFBI. Uh, <laughs> very was was very happy to get him as my RP one. So yeah, I'd have to say absolutely. And again, some of that has to do with the the relative lack of high quality and safe options out there. But I think he easily ranks in the top ten. As I look at their their group of position players, they seem like they're among the teams that is unfinished. Uh, there are probably two infield positions where there's a good chance of at least one upgrade and then whoever's left over might share the other spot. So I think it's uh, Santiago Espinal and, and Kevin Biggio. Like I could see them maybe having a spot to battle for and that's the nine spot in the order and the Jays are just fine with that. Maybe it's even a platoon. Someone is going to go to Toronto either via trade or via late free agency. But then you've got a guy, Randall Gritchick, who's just there and got that long-term deal before the Jays were good. Still has a little time left on that deal. He is a pure accumulator. He, from a like, sort of advanced stats or Sabre perspective, does not look like a good player at all. He's got a, a three-year window where he has been a half-win player or less every year, and yet you could see him popping another 20 homers and racking up a bunch of RBIs and, and decent number of runs for the for the skills that he does have, unless he somehow gets pushed out. But I kind of look at him as a extremely boring player that would also fit really well as your last outfielder. Right? If you're thinking about uh, maybe someone that's a little more stable from a health perspective than Aaron Hicks, who we just talked about, Randall Gritchick could actually surprise you around pick 400. I think he could. I think as you do, as long as you do keep that in mind, that what you're looking from him is is run production, because even the power production has been a little bit on the wane. So you would expect that as somebody who's entering into his 30s now, that you might not see uh, another uh, even 25 homer season from Gritchick, much less uh, a 30 home run season, which he had in 2019, not too long ago. Yeah, it's definitely uh, the uh, a, a good. Uh, spot for him in you know pretty much the middle of that 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 Blue Jays order. I do I do worry with players like Gritchick that and you suggested this already that because the skill set is is pretty underwhelming that somehow the Jays will acquire somebody that will relegate him to a, a fourth outfielder role which at this stage in his career seems a lot more fitting but for like you said for that fifth outfielder spot that's the spot you're you're probably going to churn no matter what so why not get Gritchick on your roster and possibly get some really consistent run production all season long. Yeah, because I'm looking at the way they're built. You know, you've got Vlad Jr. and Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Gurriel, healthy Jared Springer. You could put 
both Teoscar Hernandez and Lourdes Gurriel in the outfield and play Springer in center and just play Gritchick a little less. So that's one way the playing time could go down if you want to rotate the DH a little bit. So he can't get any worse and keep his job, but if he doesn't get worse, he might surprisingly keep his job just because of some defensive limitations of a few other players in the mix there right now. Uh, it's unprompted. I will bring up one more Blue Jay. Kevin Smith, I think, is interesting because if the Jays make a trade, he'd be the type of major league ready player that another team would probably want back. He can play shortstop well. He can play other infield positions. If they don't trade him, he could be part of the solution at one of those two infield spots. Let's say they don't get Trevor Story. Let's say they don't make a big trade. Kevin Smith has power. He has speed. He was 18 for 21 in 94 games at AAA last season. It was a 144 WRC+. plus. Popped 21 home runs. So he does a little bit of everything. This is a potential five-category player as well. And you would never think it looking at the projections for him because the playing time is light. The average is low. The OBP is low. I'm optimistic in part because he made a big change to his swing prior to the 2021 season and Proof is in the results. I mean, this is a, a pretty significant shift for a guy that looked like a, a forgotten prospect just a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good thing to note because I've sort of written Smith off going to, into this year. And it's something I've had to think about because I just submitted uh, score sheet keepers and he was somebody I was thinking about who still had minor league eligibility. And I, I did leave him off the, the keeper list and might live to regret that because... I just assumed that there wasn't going to be playing time for Smith, but you've made an argument, I think a pretty convincing one, that there could be. I I tried. Uh, I tried very hard. (laughs) Cost will be next to nothing. (laughs) Worthy of your very last spot in a mixed league. Easy cut if he doesn't have the opportunity to begin the season, especially if you're playing an AL only, keeper in dynasty leagues where he's available. This is the time to take a chance on Kevin Smith in Toronto. Let's go to the Orioles where Camden Yard's Park factors are going to change in a pretty big way. Derek Carr, you had a good thread about that at least maybe a week or so ago now. It's going to play from a power perspective, more like a neutral park, I believe, based on the the projections from Derek's system, the bat. So that immediately makes me think that John Means is probably the runaway biggest winner in all of this as as someone that had some home run issues at Camden Yards uh, previously. He's a fly ball leading pitcher, so he would be the obvious winner. And also just because you look at the Orioles rotation and he's the only one that you would likely feel pretty pretty good about drafting. So there could certainly be a, an uptick there. He's going to probably need all the help that he can get to, to get wins. So shaving a little bit of... Uh, little bit off the, the ERA uh, might help him get a couple more wins. And I'm not sure that there's a, another player. Certainly, you know, we're looking at pitchers here and there's there's really not another pitcher that you could see the park factors having that kind of impact on. Yeah, of the, the pitchers trying to win a spot. I mean, Jordan Lyles and Bruce Zimmerman and Zach Lowther, Keegan Aiken, this is the group of pitchers that are not that good. I, for the prospects on their way, this is obviously good long-term news for Grayson Rodriguez, who could be their best starter since uh, Mike Mussina. <laughs> how far back do we want to go on that one? I I don't really know. I mean, Grayson Rodriguez has an incredible ceiling. DL Hall might not be that far away. Uh, when you start looking at those prospects, like they're a lot more appealing in long-term leagues as a result of this change. 
Obviously, you lose a little something for right-handed power hitters in particular. It's not particularly good news for Trey Mancini. Probably a little bit of a concern also for Ryan Mountcastle, even though I think Mountcastle, Mountcastle, I think, hit fewer of the just enough home runs in that direction. So maybe it doesn't hurt him quite as much. It could be a little more raw power in his bat. Uh, Even opposite field home runs from lefties, though, those could tick down just a little bit too. So maybe it hurts Cedric Mullins a little on the margins. Austin Hayes, another righty that could lose a little something power-wise. Anthony Santander. I think the problem I have with the the Orioles right now is a a lot of the, the prospect depth behind the big names that, Orioles fans are kind of excited about, that prospect people are excited about. I don't know if we're going to see a lot of them this year. So when I look at second base and third base and shortstop, I see maybe two names that I would consider in really deep leagues or even guys that I'm just putting on a watch list just to see what happens. And that doesn't seem like enough names for a group of players that's about eight players deep. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think that's right. And even on the pitching side, I will admit that because I, as I've said on here a few times, I'm at this point still pretty pessimistic about MLB not losing a lot of games this year. And I don't know, DVR, if, I, if I'm taking the, the wrong tack on this, but it has been made me more reluctant to draft somebody like Grayson Rodriguez, thinking that that players like that, their, their timetable may be pushed back to the point where they just might not play enough to to make the kind of impact that we were hoping for. So, yeah, it's a unfortunate thing uh, and, and maybe gives us more to look forward to in 2023. So I, I guess the thing that you have to start thinking about if we lose more games from the Major League regular season is for players that are not on the 40-man, they can keep pitching in the minors, right? I mean, that's, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the development option they have. And with that... I don't think you'd want to take a guy like Rodriguez and say, well, we're going to wait until the season starts and and then give him all of his innings in the big leagues cuz they're yeah. they're even with expanded playoffs, they're they're not there yet. They're they're just not at that phase of their rebuild. It's more important to make sure he throws enough innings and gets deeper into starts in the upper levels of the minors than it is to make sure that x percentage of his innings this year come at the big league level. You want him to be fully stretched out for 2023 and beyond. So if you mess around early and don't just let him work as a starter full-time in the minors, almost regardless of whether or not we lose major league games, I think that's the sort of thing that can work against him from a workload perspective as well. The early shutdown is much more likely than the slow ramp-up. I think this is just a development question that teams have to think about with pitching. Are you willing to risk a pitcher not getting as many innings as you want in order to have them available late in the year. A problem more for contending teams than it is for the 2022 Orioles. Uh, But yeah, as much as I like Grayson Rodriguez, I am slowly tempering my expectations for him for this season just because of where they're at in the bigger picture. Uh, The names I think are interesting on the infield depth chart, by the way. I think Ramon Urias is pretty interesting. Uh, Some pretty decent underlying stat cast numbers there. Not much blocking him. He can play both middle infield spots, so not hard to see him playing you know, more than Ruden Odor or even seeing him just emerge as the starting shortstop. I know Jemai Jones is listed there over on the Rotowire depth charts right now. Jorge Mateo is probably the other guy just because of some of the stolen base numbers we've seen from him. 10 for 13 last year, split between the Orioles and Padres. Go back to the minor leagues, you see a lot of 20-plus steal seasons from him as well. So cheap speed on the infield, I mean, that 
that could be the appeal of someone like Jorge Mateo with the opportunity that might be in front of him in Baltimore. Yeah, no, those are the two players that I've been interested to in that or that Orioles infield. And I think Rice in particular, uh, his numbers sort of eroded as the season went on last year. But as you pointed out, the stack cast uh, measures seem to indicate that he, what, what we saw earlier on might be a, a better indication of what we can see over a, a longer time frame. So, yeah, uh, Mateo's more of a pretty deep league stolen base dart throw. But, yeah, we, we need those. <laughs> well, yeah, and even if he's not drafted, you can look and see where is he hitting when the season eventually begins? Is he higher in the order than he should be? Maybe the runs aren't bad. There could be a little bit of power sprinkled in there as well. But for Urias, a 9.7% barrel rate last year. X stats were pretty solid. 270 XBA, 427 X slug. Uh, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take my chances on that profile in that infield picture right now because the, the younger options are probably still another year out. Uh, last question for you with the Orioles. This is shifting back into the bullpen. I have started to develop a belief that Tyler Wells might be a surprising source of maybe 15 to 20 saves. Have I completely lost my mind? I don't think you have. And I, I like this, this point that you're bringing up to finish up on because I do think that we sometimes have a tendency to underrate closers on bad teams, especially a closer uh, like Tyler Wells, who I think doesn't have a whole lot of, of competition as long as he he holds up his end of the bargain. I like the skill set. I think that, you know, we talked about John Means, but I think that the, the new configuration at Camden Yards is going to help Wells a lot. Uh, last year, a 21.4% ground ball rate. He's going to need a lot of help uh, as far as keeping... Uh, preventing home runs. So yeah, I, I think that 15 saves is perfectly reasonable and maybe even still a little bit conservative. Yeah. Some of the projection systems are pointing to 21. Uh, I'm, I'm drafting, hoping for a viable third source of saves, but Tyler Wells was a starter throughout his time in the minors. I believe he was hurt in 2019, didn't pitch in 2020 because there was a, uh, no minor league season that year, came back as a reliever with the Orioles, started in just garbage mop-up situations and just kind of gradually moved into more important spots as the season unfolded. But a pretty good K rate, 29% strikeout rate last season, only a 5.4% walk rate. And I'm always intrigued by players that are just making that move into the bullpen for the first time because there's a chance that they're not just two-pitch relievers. And some of those two-pitch relievers really are one-pitch guys that just have to throw something else to keep hitters honest there could actually be a fastball slider changeup combination here uh, and re-watching some of Wells appearances I think he was doing a decent job of, of elevating his fastball so it seemed like the location strategy was one that he could execute uh, just a guy on the margins that might be surprisingly useful probably going I don't know pick 300 or so not much earlier than that in most of the leagues that I've been in so far this season that is going to do it for the AL East edition of Depth Chart Diving. If you want to check out the aforementioned Fantasy Baseball Draft Kit, get a subscription to The Athletic for just a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash podcast on Twitter. You can find Al at Al Melchior BB. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Under the Radar is back on Friday.